who became Christians. Now you have to realize, to really understand this book, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the people, Jewish people, who were in Judaism, and they received Jesus as their Savior. They came out of Judaism, and really Judaism is the foundation for Christianity. But they came out of Judaism and they came into Christianity as God wanted them to. Because there is no salvation in Judaism. You understand that. Salvation is in Jesus and Jesus came out of Judaism. You understand that? And they became Christians. But they were under such persecution. They were considered outcasts by their families. They were, they were persecuted by their families. They were thrown out of their families. They were, they were excommunicated not only from the synagogue, but from their families. You, you understand that. You have to understand that. And there was such pressure on them and such persecution. Uh, and, and you need to also realize that this, this book of Hebrews was directed to Jews who had become Christians and primarily to the church in Jerusalem is where it was was ultimately directed. And uh, but be that as it may, because of the persecution, there were several many. That were considering leaving Jesus and going back into Judaism. You realize, you understand that. That, that is the primary reason this book was written. To reach out to Christians who had come out of Judaism, they received Jesus, and they were Planning on going back into Judaism. And that's why this book was written primarily. And if you understand that, then there will be several statements that are made that will make more sense to you as we read this book. Now, in chapter 5, verse 11, you can see... That these people had become dull of hearing. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. They had become dull. They had become lazy. They had become sluggish. These people. Do you know it's possible, possible to become lazy or sluggish in your Christian walk? Much I could say about that, but we'll just move on. Also, if you look at Hebrews 10.23, he says here, and I know we're just starting the book tonight, and we're already in Hebrews 5, and then now Hebrews 10, but there's some comments here that I think it's good to look at. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without what? Without 
wavering. These people were wavering. They were wavering. They were considering turning their backs on Jesus and going back into Judaism. And then in verse 25 he says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. So we, we noticed in Hebrews 5 they'd become dull of hearing, they'd become sluggish, or that word dull means lazy or sluggish. Now he says, don't waver. And then in verse 25, have you ever heard a preacher preach on not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together? Well, you see, that was written to the Hebrews. They had apparently, many of them had stopped going to, to church. And so with that in mind, the main purpose of this book was to warn believers not to turn back to Judaism. Now, in order to do this, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 chapters. And in these 13 chapters, he is showing that Jesus is better and more superior to because what is he trying to do? He's trying to show these people that Jesus is better than Judaism. Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. So as we start in here, in a few moments, as we get into chapter 1 and chapter 2 and we go through, we'll see throughout the, all 13 chapters, first he shows that Jesus is better or more excellent than or superior to the prophets. And then he shows that Jesus is more superior to the angels. And then he shows that Jesus is superior to Moses. And then he shows that Jesus is more superior to Joshua. And then he shows that Jesus is more superior to the high priests of the Old Testament. And then he shows that Jesus is more superior to Abraham. And then he shows that Jesus is more superior and more excellent than Melchizedek. And we'll talk about Melchizedek. And then he shows that Jesus is more excellent than Aaron. And all the earthly priests. And then he'll show that Jesus is more excellent than the old covenant. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. And then he shows that Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. And then he shows that Jesus is better than all the Old Testament heroes of faith. In Hebrews the 11th chapter. We've taught on that many times over the years. And then... And chapters 12 and 13, he shows that Jesus is better than anyone else. Now, why is he writing this letter to show Jesus is better? He's doing it to get, convince these, these Christians not to turn away from Jesus and go back into Judaism. Because why do you want to turn back to something that is inferior when you have something that's better? Or have someone who is better? Okay? Now... Also, I think it's important that we here right at the beginning make it very clear because a lot of times people don't really understand the, the book of Hebrews. And, and, and this, is not a, this is not a book of milk. You know what I mean? The milk, this is not the milk of the word here that we're really looking at so much as it is the meat of the word. If there's one of the meatiest books in the Bible is the book of Hebrews. In my opinion. When somebody gets first gets saved, I would not necessarily myself direct them to read the book of Hebrews. I'd probably direct them to read the Gospel of John. 
You know what I'm saying? Uh, you don't want to take a new believer and start them out in the book of Revelation. That's probably the, the, that's the meatiest book of all, you know. No more than you take a little baby that's first born and give him a T-bone steak, you know. Follow what I'm saying? But nonetheless, what exactly were these people contemplating? Well, Hebrews, the third chapter in the 12th verse, and you'll see different statements where Paul uh, alludes to this. But I think it brings it out best here in Hebrews 3.12. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of what? Of unbelief in what? Departing from the living God. That's what these people were looking at doing. Departing from the living God. Turning their backs on Jesus Christ. That's what they were looking at doing. And that's why this book was written. To convince them not to do it. Now... Let's look a little bit more at the ramifications of what of what they were considering on doing. Hebrews the sixth chapter and the fourth verse. Now I'm giving you this up front, and then we'll go back and start with chapter one and go through chapter one and chapter two and three, four and so forth. We'll probably get through hopefully one and two tonight. We'll just see how, how it goes. Notice here, Hebrews 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened. What does that mean? That means they realized they were lost. And they needed to be saved. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, Jesus is the heavenly gift. They tasted of him. They, what does that mean? They got born again. And have become partakers of the Holy Ghost. They not only were born of the Spirit, but baptized with the Spirit. You need to understand, and we've made this clear to you as we've studied through the New Testament, that you see in the day in which we live, you the Baptists don't believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit for the most part. The Pentecostals do, Charismatics do, but back there in Bible... In, the Bible day, early Bible, early church days, what I want to say, early, the days of the early church. You got born, born again and filled with the Holy Ghost, spoke with tongues. You understand that? There's a distinction between being born again and then being filled with the Holy Spirit. Born of the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit, but back there then, and the way it ought to be today, is that somebody gets born of the Spirit and then they ought to get filled, baptized with the Holy Ghost and speak with tongues. Well, these people did. They were enlightened. That means they realized they were lost. They realized they needed Jesus. They realized that. And then they tasted of Him. They got born again and baptized with the Holy Ghost. You see that? Partakers of the Holy Spirit. And they had tasted the good Word of God what does that mean? They had, they had gotten some word in them. 
And they tasted the powers of the age to come. What does that mean? That could only mean that the gifts of the Spirit were operating in them, through them, among them, in their midst. They'd seen the power of God. If they shall fall away. What's it impossible? It's impossible that if they should fall away to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now, that always kind of confused me. What really was that meaning? Put Him to an open shame. Let me read this from this book uh, by Meyer Perlman. It's through the Bible, book by book, and it's he said he talks about this here in on page seventy one, page seventy two of his book. Just listen to this. He says the warning. Uh, I'll just pick up where he's reading here. The warning continues in these verses is against apostasy which is a willful rejection of the truths of the gospel on the part of those who have experienced its power. The true nature of the sin referred to in these verses will be better understood when we remember who are being addressed and the uh, peculiar relation of the Jewish nation to Christ. Now listen, the Jews of the writer's time could be divided into two classes. So when this is Hebrews is being written, the Jews of that time could be divided into two classes in relation to their attitude toward Christ. Those who accepted Jesus for who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and those who rejected him as an imposter and a blasphemer. Are you okay? So the Jews back there then either accepted Jesus as the Son of God, or they considered him an, an imposter and a blasphemer. Are you okay? The Jewish Christian who fell away from Christianity and returned to Judaism would by this act testify that he believed that Christ was not the Son of God, but a false prophet who merited crucifixion. He would be taking sides with those who were responsible for his death before his conversion, before the Jewish person became a Christian, before his conversion, this same Jewish Christian, in a sense, shared the guilt of his nation in crucifying Christ. Do you understand that? In forsaking Christ and returning to Judaism, he would be rejecting the Son of God a second time and crucifying him afresh. So I never understood what that meant, crucifying him afresh. What does that mean? That would mean that if you rejected Jesus, you would be then saying, essentially, he really deserved that crucifixion up there when he died on the cross. Did you get that? See, the, the, the Jews back there then, there were only two groups of them. One that accepted Jesus and one that rejected him. By and large, most of the Jewish people rejected Jesus and they do to this day. But there's a remnant 
that received him. Okay? Even to this day, right? You know what a remnant is, a smaller subset of a larger group. And so back there then, if you were a Jew, you either accepted Jesus as the Son of God, or you looked at him as an imposter and someone that deserved to die on that cross. Crucify him! Crucify him! How many remembers them yelling that out? So if you believed he was the Son of God, and then you went over and became a Christian by believing he's the Son of God, to turn your back on him... What are you saying? You're saying, you're, 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 well, how does the Bible say it here? You'd crucify, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. See, I never understood that, but, but in studying this, it's very clear to reject Jesus is to, is to say what? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. He's a blasphemer. Crucify Him. That's a dangerous thing, isn't it? It's dangerous in any event, but it's 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 lethal when you it's lethal when you were enlightened. You tasted of his goodness and you received him into your heart. You got filled with the spirit and spoken tongues. You have the word of God in you. You've seen the gifts of the Spirit operate through you or among you in your midst. And now you're going to turn your back on Him. What do you do when you turn your back on Jesus? You crucify the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. In other words, now you've grouped yourself with the crowd that once cried out what? Crucify Him, crucify Him. Now verse 4 here says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and so forth if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. Now, as a kid growing up and for many years, I really misunderstood this. I used to think that if someone turned their back on the Lord... What we'd call maybe backsliding. But even more than backsliding. If someone, you know, walked away from Jesus. That it was impossible for them to get back. And I had the idea of somebody, you know... Beating on God's door saying, let me in, please let me in. And God's saying, no, 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 no. You committed that sin. You're not going to get in. I'm not going to receive you back. I don't think that's what that's saying. That it's impossible in the essence of God won't receive them back. I believe God is so good that anybody that wants him, at least while they got breath in their lungs, he'll take them back. What I believe this is saying is that If you ever really meet somebody that really commits what we would call the unpardonable sin, I think the impossible part is not that they can't get back to God. The impossible part is a person that commits this 
you can't get them to want to get back to God. That's what's impossible. Did you get what I just said? For some 25 years I, 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 or longer, I thought, well, if somebody commits that and they have a change of heart and they want to get back to Jesus, well, that said it's impossible. And I looked at it that it was impossible in that they couldn't get back to God. God wouldn't take them back. That's not what that's saying. What this is saying is that anybody who commits this You'll go to them with tears in your eyes and, and God himself will open his arms up to them and come back, come back, come back. And they'll say, crucify him. I want nothing to do with him. Brother Hagin tells the story about a woman who pastored a church with her husband. And the devil came and lied to her and said, if you'd have stayed in the world, you'd have had great fame. But now here you are with this man that you married and you're just pastoring a little church. Nobody's ever going to know who you are. But And this woman had, she had great talent and great singing ability. And, and she could have made it big time in the world. And the devil lied to her and lied to her. And at first she rebuked him and he would leave, but then those thoughts would keep coming. You know, you're just a pastor's wife of the little church here. You sing in the church, but in the world you could have had fame and fortune. And at last she began to listen to those things. Long story short, she turns her back on the Lord, divorces her husband, Went out and had evidently several sexual affairs. And was now living with somebody that she wasn't married to. Gone back out into the world. And finally the head presbyters heard about it. Came over, spoke with her husband. He told them what had happened. They went over to where this lady was. Brother Hagen told this story. True story. She comes to the door, opens the door. We're talking about a woman who was born again, filled with the Spirit, sang in the church, under the anointing of God. Gifts of the Spirit would flow through her. Now she's turned her back on the Lord Jesus. Walked away from all of that. The presbyters, you know who the presbyters are, the head leaders of the, of the church, of headquarters. They're knocking on her door. She comes to the door. She sees them. She recognizes them. She says, I know why you're here. Don't bother. Don't even tell me anything about Jesus. As far as I'm concerned, this is what she said. I don't even like saying what she said. But I need to say it to get the point across. She said to them, I didn't say this. Brother Hagen told the story. And here's what he said that she said. She said... As for Jesus Christ, to hell with him. I want nothing to do with him and slam the door. And the woman died one day and went to hell. Isn't that sad? See, it wasn't that she couldn't get back to God. God would have taken her back. 
What is impossible if this sin is committed is those kind of people that do that, you can't get them to want to come back to the Lord. Did you get what I just said? Some people think once you're saved, you can't lose your salvation. Why does the Lord say in, I think it's First or Second Timothy, Timothy through the Apostle Paul, that in the last days some shall depart from the... How can you depart from something you were never a part of? Don't believe that once saved, always saved. It's not true. It's almost true, but there is a possibility that a person could lose their salvation. It's almost impossible to do. Do you see the seriousness of this book? Why was the book of Hebrews written? It was written to keep people from committing this sin. Look at Hebrews 10 verse 26. Are you okay? I didn't lose any of you, did I? Okay. It, uh, you say, well, why are you sharing this with us at, right at the beginning of this book? Because uh, it'll, make, it'll make you see how serious this book is. This serious stuff. And just so you know, I believe salvation can be lost. But again, it's almost impossible. It's very hard to do. Let's see, let's look a little bit more at this, what this sin actually is. Hebrews 10 verse 26, for if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now if you study into this, and you read the book of 1 John, 1 John says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. Now there's a difference between blundering, and on purpose sin, I think that, you know, how many's blundered probably today somewhere or another? You didn't mean to, but you did. But did anybody today actually, you know, do something sin? Did you tell a lie on purpose? I mean, I think there's a difference between a blunder and a on purpose. But, but the same blood that cleanses the blunder will cleanse the on purpose. We shouldn't sin on purpose. Can you say amen? But this willful sin here, what this is talking about, is not you blundering. It's not, it's not even you telling a lie on purpose. It's not even you gossiping on purpose. It's not even you committing adultery on purpose. It's, it's, it's more serious than those things, as serious as those things are. He's going to tell us what this willful sin is here in just a moment. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, fire indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has, what's that next word? Rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse or sorer, the King James says sorer, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has... Now, here's what this sin is. Who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and what? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. 
That's what this sin is. Is I don't I don't think I've met anybody yet that if the blood of Jesus was up here on the floor, you'd come up and start trampling on his blood or trampling on him, would you? But that's what this sin is. It's the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's counting his holy blood as just the blood of a thief up there and a blasphemer. It's saying that his blood was no different than the blood of those other two thieves that died on that. That's what this sin is. It's, it's after having received Jesus saying, you know what, now he's not the son of God. I don't receive him. I reject him. And his blood's just no, no better than the, than the, than the blood of the other two thieves that died. I, folks, I couldn't say that. Could you? Oh, no way. No. But that's what these people were looking at doing. And in so doing, they've done what? They've insulted the Spirit of grace. That's the Holy Ghost. There's two things in the Bible that I can find that are what we would call the unpardonable sin. The rejection of Jesus Christ after you once... You see, once you've received him and you've, you've accepted him and you, and you love him and you've, you've communed with him and then to turn your back on him and account the blood of the covenant wherewith you were sanctified as a common unholy thing and trample him underfoot and, 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 and say crucify him, crucify him. He deserved to die up there. He was just a blasphemer and a phony. See, that's a heinous thing, isn't it? And again, the impossible part is I'm convinced anybody that would ever do that. I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. I mean, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that His blood that was shed on that cross is pure and holy and, and spotless. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He is the Son of God, the God, the Son, the second member of the Trinity made flesh, holy, pure, without spot, without sin. I believe on Him. I trust in Him. I just, I couldn't turn, how can I deny the one who bought me? That's what these people were looking at doing. Do you understand that? And that, that willful sin is counting the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus as a common unholy thing. And when you do that, you do despite to the spirit of grace. You insult the Holy Ghost. There's two things that I find that, that you could call the unpardonable sin. This is one of them. The other thing Jesus said, and, and, and it's in Mark 3, verse 28. He said, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. They accused Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of the demons. They essentially... Now, Jesus cast out demons by the Holy Ghost, by the power of God. But what those people did is they basically said that he's doing it by the power of the devil. And they were attributing the work of the precious Holy Spirit. They were saying that was demon power. And Jesus warned against that. He said that anyone that does that has never forgiveness. 
Now, have you ever heard, now listen to me, have you ever heard the Baptists, because I heard them say this, speaking in tongues is of the devil. You ever heard them say that? When they say that, they don't commit the unpardonable sin. Do you know why that is? Because they don't know what they're doing. But if I said that, if I said that speaking in tongues were of the devil, if I said that and I meant it, that would be the unpardonable sin. There's a lady, she wrote a book, I can't remember her name right now. But I think she, she, she went to hell and God took her to hell for, I forget her name right now. We used to have the book in the library over here. And you, you can agree or disagree with, with, with whether or not she had those visions. I think she did. Ann Baxter. I think she did. And she talked about seeing different people in hell. And the one that she talked about was a, a preacher, a minister of the gospel, a Holy Ghost preacher. And I, I don't remember all the details of it, but she said that, that the Lord revealed to her that he once operated under the power of the Holy Ghost. But for whatever reason, he turned and he began to speak against the Holy Spirit, speak against the gifts of the Spirit and and and. And just essentially, if I remember the story correctly, that, you know, essentially they were of the devil, etc. So and so he knew better. If I did that, that would be dangerous. See, we're talking dangerous stuff here. And that's why the book of Hebrews was written to warn people. You okay? You have a question? Right. You probably haven't. Exactly. And that's a good rule of thumb, Chris. If if you're concerned, anybody listening here today or listening on the internet or whatever, listening by CD, if you are concerned and afraid that you've committed the unpardonable sin, that's a good rule of thumb. You haven't. Well, how do I know? Because you're concerned. People that commit this don't really they don't care anymore, and that's what's impossible. You see, to get them to turn back. Because I don't care no more. That's a that's a good point. And you know, it, this is not just getting mad at God and saying, you know, I'm so angry, Lord. I don't know if I want to serve you anymore. And then you think better, Lord. I'm sorry. Well, you know, there's a difference too between serving Him like I serve Him here as a pastor. I've got aggravated with pastoring. I've got discouraged by it. I've got. I've thought, you know, let's just let's just let's just go back and teach school. You know, um, no. But I mean, I've thought that. I've told, I've even made plans at times. I even called the head of the math department so, some years back. Let's just go back and teach school. You know, you, 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 you pray and you study and you study and you pray and you prepare and you prepare and you prepare. And, you know, you, you see, you see, there's, there's, you have a church of very few people interested in the Word of God. You just, why do we, well, let's just go back and teach school. 
But even if I do that, that wouldn't be the unpardonable sin. You okay with that? I'm going to go teach school. That's not the unpardonable sin. I don't mean I'm not throwing the word of God away. I'm just, I'm, you know, you understand, what, how many understands what I'm talking about? Just disgusted with this. Okay, I think, I think probably everybody that's served God any length of time has gotten frustrated. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about standing up here and saying, you know, just basically cussing this Bible and cussing Jesus and cussing the Holy Ghost and just saying I'm done and leave the church and just I'm through. And I mean mean it. And you all come over to my house, you know, and knock on it, tears in your eyes. And, and I, you know. Or if I get up and start saying, you know, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it's a bunch of hooey. It's not really real and for us and blah, 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 blah. And, or if it's of the devil and that. I mean, you start doing, now you get, you see, this is serious stuff. So, well, nobody would ever do that. People have done that. And that's why the book of Hebrews was written, because these people were considering turning their backs on Jesus. I'm, I'm up here, I'm, at, I'm actually shaking up here, even dealing with this subject. It's scary just talking about it, and I'm not doing it. I'm just telling, you, know, you understand, I'm just, I'm just talking about people who have done these things, and I'm giving you examples. I'm, I, I'm, I'm scared spitless just about just talking about these things, much less doing them. Did you get what I just said? See, there's people, Brother Hagin said, there's people in the insane asylum that think they've committed the unpardonable sin. And that when they haven't. And the devil, you know the devil, I think, has come to so many Christians to try to get them to think, get them to think they've committed the unpardonable sin when they haven't. Did you know committing a, an affair on your spouse is not the unpardonable sin, though that shouldn't be done? The unpardonable sin is counting the blood of the covenant wherewith you were sanctified an unholy thing. Cussing the Lord Jesus, cussing the Holy Ghost. I mean turning your back and walking away. And somebody that does that, it's impossible, I'm convinced, to get him to come back. I like what one preacher said, I'm in, I don't want out, I'm going to stay in, you know. But if we're, you say, well, why do you even talk about this? Because you have to understand this. It's so sobering because that's what these people were looking at doing. Are you all okay? Did I lose any? Do you have any questions or comments or thoughts or anything? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. They are just absolutely yes. It's almost like the football player that was cussing out Trump last night. Uh, right, right. Ignorant. Just ignorant, right. And Paul said that the sins that he committed, he said, I did them ignorant, ignorant in ignorance and unbelief. Right. And there's repentance. And there's repentance. Repentance. But the one who truly becomes demonic. Truly. And right. not because they've been demonic pressure, because no. Right. And they have made announcements against the Lord. Right. And essentially began to accuse Jesus of being a devil. Yes. 
that's a whole different that's a whole different universe right and and so I don't you know again I don't want anybody to leave here anybody's listening to think salvation is easily lost because it's not and just blundering or even sinning on purpose it neither should be done but you know even having an affair on your spouse as bad as that is that's not the unpardonable sin cussing isn't the unpardonable sin though those things shouldn't be done the unpardonable sin is, have I made it clear what it is? And I don't, I don't know that I've, I've, I've seen any one that, that I'm not aware of any way that I can think of that's committed this. And this is not just somebody that's coming to church, coming to church, all of a sudden they, what, what I would even call kind of backslide a little bit and they're not coming to church much anymore and kind of get cold. I, mean, I don't even think that's what this is talking about. And anybody that wants back to Jesus, and, and they're, like Chris said, they're concerned that they've, just, just the fact that that concern is there, they can get back. Well, let's, let's, I think I've said enough on that. Let's go to Hebrews 6 verse 9, because I, I think that what he said here is a, is a good way to end this little conversation. Y'all know I love Jesus. Y'all know I do. Y'all know I love the Holy Ghost. Y'all know I was just given examples there. Lord, I was just, He knows my heart. I was just given examples. I love Jesus. I love Him more than anyone else. So Hebrews 6 9 has a good way to get out of this discussion here and move on. He said, Beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Did you get that? As rough and as tough as what we just said the last many minutes were, he says, I'm confident of better things than that. Well, let me read it. Beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So I've said some tough things, but anybody that's listening to me, I, I, I am confident that, that you would never commit such a heinous sin. Okay? You alright? Now, just let me make clear. Again, I need to say this. There are some people that would really get in a doctrinal argument with me and say, no, once saved, always saved, once saved, always saved, once saved, always saved. And I basically believe that 99%. Are you okay? Is that, is that, but there is this one thing that we've talked about that, that, so I don't believe once saved, always saved 100%. There's, there is, there is this, that thing we talked about here. There'd be no reason for the, right. There'd be no reason for these things to be in there if, if, if you're saved and that's the end of it. And I've said this for years. A lot of times, you know, you say, well, well, they walk the aisle and receive Jesus, but they're, they just sin, sin, sin. It never seems to bother them. They don't ever come to church, but they don't ever want to have any interest in God. How many of you know you can receive Jesus in your head, but not get him in your heart? And there'll never be a change, you see. But somebody that really has Jesus in their heart, when they sin, it's going to bug them. And bug them bad. Now, you can sin so much, and the Bible will talk about this. Do you know sin is deceitful? 
The book of Hebrews will bring it out as we go. And it can deceive somebody. And in the process, it hardens you. We'll talk about that as we go. Won't get to it tonight. There are some people, the Armenians think you can lose your salvation every time you turn around. And you've got to keep getting saved over and over and over again. That's wrong too. You get born again, you get saved, you, and you, you get, you're in. And the only one that can, do you know you're the only one that can get you in Christ? And you're the only one that can get you out. You didn't get in, you can't get into Jesus by accident. You can't get out of him by accident. Is that right? I'll say that again. You, you can't get saved by accident. And then you can't get unsaved by accident. You get saved by a decision and you get, you can, you can lose it by a decision. But it's not just something that you do in passing. It's something that you've thought through and you've made a decision and you renounce Christ and walk away from Him. And I've never met anybody yet that I'm aware of that's done that. That I'm aware of. That really knew Jesus. But I'm confident of better things concerning you. Let's go to Hebrews 1. Well, that was a sobering way to open the... You weren't expecting that tonight, probably. Huh? It's serious stuff. God, now, so he starts out now, he's showing that Jesus, so as we go through here, we're showing that Jesus is what? He is better. Real loud, say better. Better. Better, better, better. Jesus is better. And that's what he's doing here throughout the rest of the book is he's going to be showing that Jesus is better than everything you find in the Old Covenant under Judaism. As good as that was, Jesus is better. God, verse 1, Hebrews 1, 1, who at various times... So first of all, he's going to show that Jesus is better than the prophets... God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. See, Jesus is the creator of the universe. And we brought that out, I think, when we taught on Colossians. Verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And uphold, you know, I want to put verse 3 in the Amplified if we could. Can we put verse 3 in the Amplified? Now look how this reads. Jesus, he is the, I can't read that honey, that backing, I just can't read that. Can you all read that? That's hard for me, that light. Yeah, that's better. He is the sole expression of the glory of God. Talking about Jesus. The light being. The outraying or radiance of the divine. Now, leave that up there, please. You need to realize this. That as we go through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews really is not about the deity of Christ. Think about this. Jesus Christ. Human God. Which part of Jesus Christ is the God part? 
That name, Jesus Christ. Now, now you've been saved all these years. You better get the answer to this or I'm going to make you write sentences. Jesus and Christ. Which is the God part? Christ. Which is the Jesus part? Or, I'm sorry. Which is the human part? Jesus. Did you get that now? Christ is not his last name. You understand that? There's a lot of people think that it is. Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, there's a human part and a God part. Which is the human part? Christ or Jesus? Huh? Which is the human part? Jesus. Which is the God part? Christ. Means the anointing. The book of Hebrews is not so much about his deity. It's about Showing that in his humanity, it's exalting his humanity and showing that him as a human being, though he was 100% human, he is also 100% God. That's what, that's what really Paul's trying to point out to these people. And notice right here, and, and by the way, Diane, put Acts 10.38 up there in the New King James. This will help people. Acts 10.38. Look at this, guys. Look at this. How God anointed Christ. Does it say that? No. God, that's the Father... Anointed who? Jesus of Nazareth. See, that Jesus of Nazareth is, is, his, is his humanity. He didn't need anointing in his deity. He's already anointed. He is the anointing. But the second member of the Trinity laid down his not possession of deity, but his expression of it, and he became a man known as Jesus of Nazareth. As a man, he needed the anointing. So the Father... God anointed the man, Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. Do you see that there? And what the book of Hebrews is about is showing these people that Jesus of Nazareth is God. And since he's God, he's better and don't turn away from him. Did you get that? And back to that verse I just had, if you would, Diane, Hebrews 1.3 in the Amplified. Hebrews 1.3 in the Amplified. Paul is saying, not only is he better than the prophets, but he is the sole, Jesus is the sole expression of the glory of God. The imprint, if you will. The light being the outraying or the radiance of the divine. He is the perfect, look, he's the perfect imprint and very image of God's nature. Remember, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Why? Because he is the perfect imprint and very image of God's nature, upholding and maintaining and guiding and propelling the universe by his mighty word of power. Scientists don't even know how particles and how, how the universe stays intact. They really don't. At the, you study it out and see at the end of the day, they can't really tell you. But all they have to do is look at Hebrews 1.3. How, how, is, how is everything maintained and upheld? 
notice this, by his mighty word of power. Can you say amen? When he had, by offering himself, accomplished our cleansing of sins and radiance of guilt and riddance, I'm sorry, riddance of guilt, he sat down at the right hand of the divine majesty on high. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is, he's the, to see him is to see Almighty God. Now then look at verse 4. So he's better than the prophets. Now notice, he's better than the angels. Having become so much better than the angels. Now, as we go through here and as we move through, and I want you to read before you come back next week, chapter, all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. Because we're going to talk about these two chapters, get in depth next, next time. But it's talking here in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, that's not in his deity. His deity was already better than the angels. This is talking about in his humanity. See, what we're really driving at here and what we're going to see is that a man, a human being, went in and sat down at the right hand of God and God called this man, we'll see it here, he called him God. That's who Jesus is. We're well represented in heaven. We have a big brother in heaven. His name is Jesus. And he's 100% God, but this book of Hebrews is going to show that as a, as a man, it's going to, we'll see it next week how Adam sinned and fell through the spiritual rank and took up residency underneath the fallen angels and how Jesus didn't sin, Adam sinned, we're going to see how Jesus voluntarily stepped down there to save us. And then when he was raised from the dead, brought us back up through the ranks. And, 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 and when he got raised, we got raised with him. And he, after he was raised from the dead, this will all bear itself out, that he went into the Holy of Holies, he presented his blood, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. God called him God. Can you say amen? My goodness. That's exciting. We'll get to that. We won't get to it tonight. I have to let you go here in about three minutes. But look at verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels. This is in his humanity now. So you have to keep this in mind as we go through here. As he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Well, how can God inherit anything? This isn't talking about him in his deity. This is talking about him in his humanity. It's really talking about how the name of Jesus. Did you know that Jesus back in the day that Jesus walked the earth was a common name? It's like our, our Bill or Joe or John. What God did was took a common name. And exalted it to the right hand of majesty. That's really what he did. That's what this book really is showing. Oh my goodness. He came for every person. 
every person. It wasn't a unique name. But he made it unique. There's other Jesuses talked about in the Bible. But there's only one that was from Nazareth. Now, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, than who? Than the angels. For to which of the angels did he, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again I'll be to him a father and he'll be to me a son. Here's an assignment for you all. For next week, we're going to pick up right here next week, this word begotten in, in verse 5. I want you to look that word up in the Strong's Concordance and find out what that word is and what it means. And then I want you to go to John 3.16. Remember over there, now here, right here he's talking about, Today I have begotten you. And remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. I want you to look that word begotten up in John 3.16. We're going to pick up with this next time now. Now I want you to see what that word begotten is and see if those two words are the same. And you'll find that they're not. And I want you to find the how they're different. And then, I want you to also... Go to Acts, the 13th chapter. And I want you to read verses 29 to 33. Acts 13, 29 to 33. And I want you to, after you read Acts 13, 29 to 33, I want you to go back to Hebrews 1 verse 5. And when he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, after you read Acts 13, I want you to tell me if when he says here, today I have begotten you, is he, is he in the context of the virgin birth? Or is he in the context of the resurrection from the dead? Did you get what I just said there? I'll say it again real quickly. First, I want you to compare Hebrews 1 verse 5 with John 3.16, those two word begotten. I want you to see how they're different. Look them up in the Strong's. You, you can do that if you have a computer. You can do that very easily. If you have a cell phone, you can do that. And then read Acts 13.29 to 33. And then go back to Hebrews 1.5 and tell me is... The, the begotten there, today I've begotten you. Is he talking about when he was born in Bethlehem? Or is it talking about the resurrection from the dead? And then next week we're going to get in there and we're going to talk about when, when, when Jesus was raised. Well, I don't want to give, <laughs> I don't want to give, give, give away the, but the assignment, but we're going to talk about what happened when Jesus got raised from the dead. And what happened to the, to the human race potentially when Jesus got raised from the dead. You know what I mean when I say potentially? Because just because Jesus got raised from the dead doesn't mean everybody's going to get in on it. 
Do you know there are some teach, and this is an errant, this is a, this is a false doctrine. They teach that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, everybody's saved. Did you know that's wrong? You don't have any personal choice. But that's a false doctrine. Everybody's saved because Jesus got raised from the dead. No, when Jesus got raised from the dead, that potential was given to everybody, but we have to make a decision to receive him as our Savior. But we're going to look at how God exalted the name of Jesus and how he exalted him to the right hand of power. And that when he got raised, we got raised with him. And we're going to actually look at in chapter 1 and chapter 2, actually, as we go through, we're going to see what God said when he raised Jesus from the dead. We're going to look at the very words God used, and they're quoted right out of the Old Testament. The words that God used when he raised Jesus from the dead and how he raised man from a a place of spiritual death back to where Adam was in the garden and not only only there but better than what Adam had can you say amen that's going to be that's going to be exciting so we'll do that next week when we start and uh so so read through that and we'll pick up here next time and it's all to show these Hebrews that had become Christians, that Jesus is better. And after Paul gets done with chapters 1 and 2, I don't know why anybody would want to walk away from Jesus. But then he doesn't stop with chapter 2. He goes on and he shows that he's better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the high priest, better than Abraham, better than Melchizedek, and so on and so forth, all the way down. And we're going to have a lot of fun over the next many months. Okay?